Okay, Matthew chapter 13. It open up there. We're going to continue through Matthew 13. I don't know exactly how far we're going to get, but uh, we'll see how things go. We might get all the way down to verse 53. And we're going to start in 24. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you know, thank you for this for this night that we get to share with one another. Um, Lord, it's always, you know, humbling uh, to teach <laughs> these, these people that know so much more than I do and uh, probably have so much more to say about this than I do. You know, Lord, I just pray that there'd be something uh, beneficial uh, that would be ministered to our hearts, you know, not by me, you know, cause, you know, who am I, but, you know, by your spirit, you know, as you just move in our midst, as you minister tonight, I pray, God, that you speak to each and every one of us individually, specifically, and it would impact our hearts personally with wherever we're at and whatever we're going through. So Lord, I just pray your, pray your blessing upon this night and upon your word as it goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we spoke about parables uh, kind of generally, and we got into one a little bit more specifically. Uh, and it was definitely one of the more uh, well-known parables, one of the more well-received parables um, you know, uh, today, I don't know what to call this. These, these are the other parables. Uh, these ones that, that aren't quite as uh, loved universally. They're a little bit more heavy thematically. So we're going to talk about these guys today, these kind of weighty parables. The good thing is, right, is I recognize every face out there today. You know, for, for none of you, this is your first brush with the Bible. Uh, because <laughs> if it was... Uh, you, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you'd react to these these uh, these parables tonight, um, but you know, all of you, you you're familiar with this stuff, so we could talk about it, and uh, and you know, most likely you'll you'll come back another time in the future when Sam's teaching, so yeah, that'll be a good thing. Uh, so more kingdom parables. That was the introduction. Let's begin in verse 24. Verse 24. It says Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, uh, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull up, uh, pull them up? And he said, no, right, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burnt. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Um, I'll be honest, this, uh, this parable has always made me incredibly uncomfortable 
And, uh, and, and I'll say, you know, probably one of the main reasons that it makes me so uncomfortable is because I don't understand the, the full ramifications of everything that's said here, right? And, and it would be easy to say, well, then just skip ahead, you know, to verse 36, because Jesus explains the parable there, right? I mean, there's this great uh, explanation that's offered by Jesus concerning his own words. So let's just read that and everything will make sense, right? Let's go to verse 36. And verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the peril of the weeds in the field. And right, they, they felt the same way that, that I do about this parable. Like this, uh, this, is, this is bothering me. This is going to keep me up at night. Uh, so, you know, break it down for me. And he did. He answered in verse 37. The one who sowed the seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of uh, the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. Harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and uh, burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin. And all who do evil, they will throw them into the fiery furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And, uh, and, and doesn't that make it more clear? And doesn't that make you feel better about the whole thing? Uh, it, it doesn't for me. <laughs> it really, <laughs> I read that and I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to understand it. After that, because Jesus explained it so clearly. I mean, he just went through all of his symbolic elements and everything in this perfect picture uh, of the kingdom and the, the wheat and the tares. And it just kind of makes me feel more uncomfortable about the whole scenario. Uh, I remember, you know, I, I never really uh, went to church as a kid. I had very uh, spotty church attendance. But every once in a while, my grandma would take me up there. And I remember... Uh, our old pastor, this fiery old Baptist pastor. You know, I didn't hear him that often as a kid, but for some reason it seemed like most times when I would go, he would be speaking about this parable. It, it brought him, it brought him this strange sense of comfort. Tony went to that church too. I don't know if you ever heard him teach on this passage. It was terrifying, right? And and I remember, you know, and and again, my my memory is is, is spotty, but but he would be up there, and and you know, he'd be looking out at the con congregation. He'd be saying things like, you know, who knows if you're a wheat or a tear, and and you 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 look like a perfectly good shoot of wheat to me, but I don't know your heart, and no one can know. You can't even know your heart. You may very well be a weed. Right? You don't know yourself. You could be a tear and you'll be cast into the fire. And, and, and I, it just struck me. It terrified me. And there's nothing to differentiate the two. And it left this great ambiguity in, 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 in my heart of, well, what am I? And, and, and by the only time that I could know with any sense of certainty is when it's absolutely too late. You know, it's like you finally get your answer. And he's like, okay, here it is the determination. You're a tear. And it's like, what? he's like, okay, bundle that guy up, throw him in the fire. That's a dreadful thing to consider, right? I mean, and, and, and you know, and, 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 and what, 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 what if I'm the result of the devil's seed? And isn't that devastating to say to a kid? 
You know, it's like, you know, God's out there and he's doing his thing and there's good seed being scattered about. Oh, but not you. You're of another kind of seed. And not just any old seed. You're of the devil's seed. I mean, that's, that's drastic and damning and, and it's terrifying. And, 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 and there's this, there's this moment that's engraved in my memory uh, of seeing him standing behind that imposing pulpit, pointing his finger. And I'm sure it was for illustrative purposes, but I was too young to understand the point of it, uh, of him pointing his finger in judgment as we all cowered in shame. And he would say, tear, wheat, tear, tear, wheat. And then he pointed to someone and he laughed and he said, I know you, you were a sown seed of Satan himself. And it was, it was terrifying. I would quiver in protest. But your protest at that point is in vain futility, right? You'd say, no, I'm a good seed. I'm, I'm not all that weedy, you know, but who can you argue with? Right? It's too late. You're bundled up and you're cast into the fire. And that irrational fear followed me into the ministry, sad to say. It drove me to the point where I was, you know, scanning the field of, of the youth ministry and constantly checking and rechecking and double checking and triple checking each one of the kids that would shoot up in the group. And I'd be like, okay, so you, you look pretty good. You're doing good. You're good. Everything's good. You're wheat. That's what you are. Think, think weedy thoughts. You know, and it's like, you know, it's, it's good. And, and, and then they'd do something and I'd be like, ah, but no, you in this light, you look like a weed. You're not, you, you don't look too weedy, you know, and it's, and, and it would, it would make me paranoid and it deeply troubled me. I don't think that that's what Jesus meant by this at all. Right. And, 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 and. And I think it would do us all a lot of good just to study the natural context of his audience, right? Uh, if you consider the weeds of the wheat fields in the Holy Land, the most common uh, weed that pops up in the crop is a bearded darnel, right? And I don't know anything about plants and weeds, and, and so I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a bearded darnel, I guess, I've heard some people say Darnell, and that sounds like a guy. And then I imagine some guy named Darnell hanging out there in the wheat field. And he's the bad guy, okay? Uh, but this wheat, or this weed, looks almost identical to wheat, right, when they're coming up. They, and you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm not, I'm not Darnell. <laughs> You're like my pastor all over again. <laughs> Tear! No, I'm just kidding. It says you. Okay. So, but, but I mean, this is, they look almost identical. And so it would be impossible to separate these two before the appointed time of harvest. And even if you were savvy enough to know the difference, it'd be unwise. And then therefore it's ill-advised to try and uproot the weed because the root systems would be so intertwined. So in pulling up this weed, you're going to pull up something valuable you're going to pull up some wheat all right so even if you're in the right you're going to be doing something that's just wrong and i think that that's the point of this 
I don't think Jesus said this to send us on high alert that we would run out into the fields and try to weed out everything that that appears to be a weed, you know, and, and scour the fields for tares and point our fingers and say, you're the one and you need to be destroyed or that we would point our fingers at ourselves and say, well, I'm paranoid. And, and I think he said this just to point us or to put us at ease. So we don't know who is and who isn't good seed. And we have no idea where they're at in their growth cycle. I think that it's just a really gracious God that waits until the end, you know, to make his determination. And, and, and here's something else. And, and here's something I never thought about before uh, this morning at about 6 a.m. when I woke up to finish this. Um, that I would feel such immense shame uh, standing next to someone in glory that I denounced as a weed. You, you know, I, 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 and there they are on, on the, um, standing on the streets side by side with me, and I spent a disproportionate amount of my days, you know, saying, uh, you know, that, that this guy is awfully weedy and that people shouldn't be listening to him like some do about Rick Warren or like I have a tendency to do about Joel Osteen. You know, there's so much that I don't know. And there's so much that he never asked me to know in the first place, because what could I possibly know just being a stalk of wheat? The task wasn't left up to me to determine who's weedy and who's weedy. You know, the, the task is left up to him because he's the one that's qualified to do it. Right? He's the one that's able to make the correct uh, determination of their content. And anything I attempt would just be folly. You know, I think that one of the great things that this parable teaches us is the patience of God. And, and I'll tell you why. Be, because there's a lot of times where... I'm sure I appeared very weedy at some stage in my growth cycle. And it wasn't at that stage that he looked at me as my pastor did at one time, pointed his finger and screamed at me, you're a tear. And he was done with me. He was constantly patient with me. He's not... He's not waiting for us to become something that we're not, right? It's not that you should, you, you can't read this and say, well, given enough time, a weed can become wheat because that's just not the reality of it. But he's giving us all enough time to become something spectacular. He's giving us all enough time to grow into what we are. He's giving us all enough time to sprout up into our fullness. And he's warning us that making a determination of the content of the field is really none of our business. The great thing about this parable, and I think one of the initial purposes of saying this parable to his disciples, was to let them know that there's going to be a strategy against the kingdom of God. There's going to be a time when our enemy 
stops attacking the kingdom of God and decides to join the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that uh, is, is, well, it's, it's essentially a history lesson. And, well, I got 45 minutes. Let's get into this. Uh, for the first 300 years, you're like, oh, why did I come? <laughs> for, the first, for the first 300 years of church history, the strategy of the enemy was to throw torches at the field of God, right? God scattered all this glorious seed and all this good, you know, crop of wheat is coming up. And so the strategy of the, en- the, strategy of the enemy was to destroy that crop. But with every torch he threw, right, it was like fertilizer to the crop. He, I mean, he would send out wave after wave of persecution to knock out the Christians, and they would kill him by the hundreds, but Christian, Christianity would grow by the thousands. You know, it would, it would only strengthen the crop. It would only further the crop. And so there came a time when he stopped throwing torches, and he started scattering seeds. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, saying there's going to be a time when your enemy decides to start sowing seeds for himself. And he's going to do it in my field. And right, it was, it was 313. Wish I had written this down. <laughs> 313, the Edict of Milan. Is this being recorded? Curses. Um, the, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the th- I, I believe it's, I should add that as an as, as an addition to what I just said. I believe it's 313, the Edict of the Milan, and Constantine uh, decided to uh, make it so that there would be religious tolerance in, in Rome. And so he said, hey, we're not going to kill Christians anymore. We're going to allow them to do their own thing. And I, I can't say, and it's not up to me, to determine if Constantine was a wheat or a tear, because who am I? I'm just a stock of grain. What I can say with some degree of certainty is it is at this time that while Christianity was made acceptable, it was also at this time that Christianity began to change. And, and there was all these things that began to be introduced into the mix of it. You know, the, the veneration of saints and the exaltation of Mary and, and all these mediators that were put in place of people and Jesus. And, 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 and I don't know what Constantine was thinking and, and if he was a true believer and all that. And, but I, I do know that he was a politician and it's bad politics, you know, to, to become a, a pagan or to become a Christian and deny all of your former pagan gods, right? You end up losing the favor of a lot of people if you do that kind of a decision. So he took pagan gods and kind of invented Christian demigods. And seeds were sown in the field of God. And, and the crop, the dynamic of it began to change. The strategy of our enemy changed. All right, and, and I have no idea where I am. <laughs> and this is when the devil stopped fighting the church and decided to join it. He decided that he could do more damage from within it, right? And it's something that's, it's really hard. Uh, sometimes it's really hard to tell when the devil's doing it, right? And, and that's why I, I, I think it's, it's best if, if we were all just a little bit more quiet about it. But sometimes it's not so hard. Sometimes you look out into the crop and you just see a giant cactus out there. 
And I don't know. You know, maybe I'm wrong. And and maybe you would say, well, Michael, you need to be much more compassionate. But, you know, when I watch on Dateline, uh, a televangelist raise millions of dollars to build a Bible college, then he takes that that money and builds himself another lavish mansion. I say, well, there's a cactus in the wheat field. And it's not all that hard to distinguish. Right? There's something is running amok here. I don't know where you draw the line, but I know that, that you know, there are some certainties in the Bible, and 2 Peter 3.9 is one of them. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some would say or determine uh, slowness or slackness. He's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And, and, and listen, because this actually is in my notes. Um, <laughs> I, there, there are some things... Uh, that, that confound me in scripture. And maybe this is the point of this parable, is that even God, when it's all said and done, doesn't get what he wants. Have you ever actually considered that? I mean, if there's anyone that should have it their way right away, right, it's God, right? I mean, he should always get what he wants, but he absolutely doesn't. Right? He wants for all to come to repentance. He doesn't want any to perish. Right? He doesn't want anyone bundled up and thrown into the fire. He wants them all ushered into the barn. He wants a field full of good wheat. But the reality of it is, is that the grain that, or the ground that isn't receptive to the good seed is often receptive to the bad seed. And unfortunately, there will be tares. And he won't wait forever. There will come a time of harvest where he takes in the crop and makes the determination. But until then, that's his job and not ours. In verse 31, he told them another parable. And the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took, planted in his garden, Though it is the smallest of your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. You know, different people have divergent interpretations of what this parable means, right? And actually, the majority of the commentators uh, say something along the lines of, you know, this parable is talking about the church and how it's going to get really big and how the whole world is going to be able to take refuge in its branches. And that's a great idea. That's really beautiful and lovely. And I wish that that's what it was talking about because that would really lighten the mood here. Um, but I don't think that that's what Jesus meant here. You know, there's a law of biblical interpretation called uh, expositional consistency. Right, and that sounds like really intelligent, and I'm sure you're very impressed right now. You're all like, wow, that Michael guy, those glasses, they don't lie. He is, he's, the guy's an egghead. Um, but the law is really just common sense, right? It means that uh, the default explanation for a symbolic element is the way that it's most commonly used, right? And, and in this chapter, chapter 13 and in verse 4, Jesus speaks about birds symbolically, you know, and, and in verse 19, uh, he defines what these birds mean directly. 
And he says that they're the evil one, right? So we can't just say that, well, this just, this parable is just talking about, you know, how the church is going to get big. Then all these, you know, shiny, happy, wonderful people are going to come flocking in and they're going to hang out. We're all going to have a grand time together, right? Because this symbolic element that he uses here, he just used a couple of verses ago to talk about the devil, right? So, I mean, it's another heavy parable. Right? Jesus is just being realistic. I think he's being really quite prophetic here when he says, you know, this thing's going to grow, but it's not going to be all good, right? The, the first uh, thing about it is that the growth isn't all good. You know, a mustard seed, that's a very small seed. And when, it plant, when it's planted, it can be a pretty big bush. But no mustard seed has ever grown into a tree, let alone one big enough to house birds, you know, roosting in them. Uh, that's just, that's, that's unnatural growth. That's a freakishly large mustard plant. And it's got unnatural visitors living in it. Right, so he's speaking prophetically here and he says, listen, th this thing is going to grow. It's going to grow beyond where it really should grow because it's going to be filled with all kinds of wickedness roosting in its branches. They're going to come in and they're going to take advantage of this place. They're going to call it their home and they're going to use it to spread their false teachings and... Uh, they're going to do all of that in the midst of you. Uh, and they're going to desire to be counted as one of you. And he goes on in verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. When a woman took and mixed it into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. So he fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. I can't imagine being in this crowd. I mean, he, he just said something huge and confusing. And then, you know, uh, immediately you're blindsided with another huge, confusing thing. Uh, but this is... This is what, uh, you know, was spoken about the Messiah. So he's going to come teaching in parables. And uh, boy, does he. You know, I mean, this is another one that, that preachers have these really uh, fantastic ideas about. And the majority of the commentators, uh, again, you know, you have to take issue with if you believe in expositional consistency. Because they say that, okay... This woman has done this wonderful thing. She's got this great lump. And then she takes this little leaven, she introduces it into this lump, and this glorious leaven goes all throughout the lump, and it spreads itself, and the whole thing rises to beauty. But the question has to be, when did leaven ever make anything good? Right? Did that element in this parable jump out to you as something Oh, I've read that in the Bible, and it's always about good stuff happening, right? You know, I read in one of my commentaries, they said, leaven is used 98 times in the Bible. I couldn't find it 98 times in the Bible. I found it about 60 times in the Bible, but he's probably much smarter than I am. And almost every single time that it's used, it's used to speak about sin or evil in some way, right? Even Jesus used leaven this way. 
Didn't Jesus say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? And didn't Paul say a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? Right Now, Jesus didn't say, okay, now leaven is always a bad thing, but the way I'm using it here, I'm talking about good stuff. He didn't do that. If he did, then maybe we can have that interpretation. And, and I said that word wrong, but I'm not going to try and say it again. But he, so he didn't. So we can't, we can't come to that conclusion, right? This is a corrupting element. He's saying that this is going to be introduced into the church and the church will be corrupted. And, and here's the point of it all, right? We've done these three parables and, and I know it's only been 25 minutes and every single one of you, you look like I'm just abusing you. And I feel abused myself. I felt abused studying for this. This was the least fun I've ever had studying for a message. And it's because the content of it is just so gnarly. And, 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 and the elements of it are, are just so dicey. And I'm like, okay, this is what, this is what Sam leaves me with. Sam's like, you gotta continue through Matthew. You know, you can't do anything else. I wanted to do a message about hugging people or something. You know, but he's like, you gotta, you gotta do these parables. You know, so I'm like, okay, you know, what do I do with this? All these are about the church being corrupted. That's it. That's the main idea. All, every single, every single one of these is about how messed up the church is going to be. And, and listen, the, the reality is, is that, that, that everything is not going to be perfect and peachy in here. That's what all these parables are about. Right? I, I mean, and the, but, the, but that's, here, here's the, here's the point. We expect that when we come in here, don't we? You expect when you walk through those doors, you're going to meet a bunch of people who never go through anything, you know, tough. There's no trials there. They never say the wrong thing there. They're all compassionate and compassionate and loving. You know, they're all merciful. They're never judgmental, you know, and and this is what church is going to be like. And that's what we expect when we come in here. Right. And then you do. You do come in here. And is that what you find? No. Never, never, I've never, never, it won't happen. You won't find it anywhere. And is that sad to hear? Yeah. But is that the reality of it? Yeah. Right. You walk through those doors and what do you find? You find a group of people that don't talk to you because you're a stranger, right? You find a group of people that are making snap judgments about you because you look like a weirdo, right? You find a group of people that don't really know you, but they've already got all kinds of assumptions about you. Right? Oh, and him, I'm sure. I, I, I talked to him once and it sounds like his marriage is on the rocks. And, and oh, are we gossiping? No, we're not gossiping. I'm just saying this so that you can pray about him. Should we go talk to him? No, let's just stand over here and talk about him. That's what church is like. Right? We come in here and, and, and right when we're out there and we expect it to be the spiritual equivalent of Disneyland. We expect it to be the happiest place on earth. And is that what we find? No. You come in here and you find a field with weeds in it. Right? You come in here and you find uh, some, some gnarly birds. And they're roosting about. And they're pecking at you and picking at you. You come in here, right, and, and you find uh, that the, there's just may, maybe a mite bit too much leaven laying about that's infecting and permeating all the people. And I'll say that the best of us have this problem from time to time. It's not something that we can look at and say, okay, well, yeah, that's the church. There's going to be weeds and it's going to be them. 
No, there's going to be weeds and it's going to be all of us from time to time. Because in the right light, we all look like a bearded darnel. It's not just me because of my glorious facial hair. Right? It's all of us. Right? In the right light, we all look like a, a feathery fellow sitting in a chair. Right? And from time to time, we're, we're all pretty heavy laden with leaven. Right, And I think the best thing that we can do is acknowledge this so that people won't be caught off guard by this and driven away when they observe it for themselves. You know, there's some good here. And I think that maybe maybe we should end this portion on that. Right, God says that that this thing is going to spread and it's going to grow. There's going to be a lot of growth. And there's going to be some glorious growth to it. It's not going to be all weeds and one stalk of wheat, and that's going to be Tony. And we're all, we're all just hares. You know, he says, no, the seed is going to go out, and people, it's going to fall on good ground, and some good stuff is going to come up. And it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. But here's the reality. It's not going to be perfect. And it's not going to be perfect until the harvest when he makes it perfect. Um, and you know what? I finished, I finished these three parables this morning. And then I thought, man, I really don't want to end there. <laughs> what is the kingdom of God like? Here's a word for you, corrupt. And, and let's close in a word of prayer. Yeah, let's all skedaddle and go enjoy our sad, tarnished lives, (laughs) roosting evils and sin. There you go. Enjoy yourselves out there. Um, so it's like, I can't do that. Let's, so let's go on. (laughs) So I still got some time. Let's go on to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. Oh, don't you love it already? It's like the, the vibe completely changed in here, you know, and it's, Everyone's smiling again, some of you. Some of you still look depressed. But (laughs) the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then uh, in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. This This is a wonderful parable. Unfortunately, it's often a misinterpreted uh, parable as well, right? But... Uh, the, and, and some people say that, okay, well, we can identify most of these elements easily, right? The, the field is the world because it's always the world, right? Then they say, we are the man, and the treasure is uh, it's the salvation, it's salvation, right? And, and they say, well, we should go out there and we should give everything that we have to obtain it. And perspiring preachers wax eloquent on this, and they you know, say things like, you know, you've lived long in this land, and you've squandered your days, and, and you just constantly giving yourself to petty things that are frivolous, and, and, and they preach these wonderful messages on surrender and submission and sacrifice and all that you need to do and all that you need to give so that you can obtain this precious, beautiful, hidden treasure Oh, and it comes at a great price, but its worth is beyond measure. And, and that interpretation uh, that, that was preached to me, you know, off and on you know, throughout my childhood, 
was the reason why I gave my life to Christ on almost a nightly basis. Because when every day dawned, I felt like it was another day where I squandered my wealth, right? And look what I've done with another day, and I'm such a failure. And I would fall on my knees and beat my chest and say, God, forgive me. Another day where I feel like I haven't gotten it right and I'm not worthy. And and God would maybe just say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're not worthy and you're never going to be. And then I would say, oh, no, well, woe is me. Well, what can be done? And he would say, well, you know, maybe just read it right. <laughs> you know? And, and when, when have I ever been the man? In all these parables, you can read them. I'm not the man. You're not the man, especially if you're a woman. You know, that's just the reality of it. Jesus is always the man, right? In every single one of these parables, in all the kingdom parables, Jesus is the man, and he stands before them and says, I've come to buy the field, which is always the world. And Jesus is the man. He says, I've come to buy the field. And, and maybe the seller would look at him and say, well, you're a man of incredible wealth. You have plenty of fields. You have the Mars field and the Venus field. You, you have the you know, and, um, Saturn field. I was, I was like, I just took uh, astronomy. You know why? Why do I only have like two planets? You know, I should, there's more, I'm sure of it. You know, and, and, but is it, you know, and maybe the seller would be like, well, why? Thank you, your teacher. You, thank you. You, you should be up here. But you know, he's like, you know, you know, you have all this wealth and all this possession. And what do you want with this measly little field? And he says, you know what? I'll trade it all. I'll give it all up because I want that field. I want to buy that place and that space. And, 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 and Jesus is this man of incredible wealth. And he came to purchase this dreadful field. But you know what? In Jesus' day, if you wanted to hide a treasure, you would bear, you'd dig a hole and bury it in your field so that thieves wouldn't come in and steal it. And he knew that. And he said, I know that there's something tucked away in this field that you're neglecting, that you're not noticing. And so he gave everything he had to purchase that field. In his incarnation, he humbled himself to walk upon that field. When he stepped on that field, he was spat upon and mocked. He shed his blood on that field, and he was made a curse on that field. He was crucified on that field. You know, I remember watching The Passion of the Christ and, uh, and crying like a baby. You know, seeing what he paid to purchase that field. And my face swelling up like a pumpkin and huge snot bubbles exploding all over it and, and never being more emotional in my, entire, in my entire life. But there's something that they left out. There really is. There's something that they completely neglected in the Passion of the Christ. And it's in Hebrews 12, verse 2, and it's here in this parable. Hebrews 12, 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
set before him, right? Endured the cross, scorned and shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cost was immense to purchase the field. But he paid that cost with great joy. It was his greatest joy to come and to go through all of that to purchase this field because he knew the secret. That in buying the field, he had access to the hidden treasure in its grounds. Something that was unappreciated by the field's former owner. And it's you. And it's me. We are that hidden treasure that was purchased by his blood. And here's the thing. I love that. I reassure myself with that. But I don't always feel like that. Right? And I read that. And I can say, intellectually, I understand that I'm his treasure and that he paid this price for me. But most of the time, I feel like a failure. Most of the time, I feel like God would probably be scouring his house looking for a receipt to take me back if he could. He was like, I paid this huge price for this guy and look at him. He's a mess. He can't get it together. You know, when I was in the, was the fifth grade, when I was in the fifth grade, I saved up everything I could and I went and I bought my first base. I went to a pawn shop, which is wonderful in the redemptive picture because you redeem things at a pawn shop, right? Not to spiritualize my life overly, but I, I went to this pawn shop and I bought my first base and it was an, and it was an applause. Have any of you ever heard of the brand applause in bases? Gil, and I would expect that from Gil. I haven't seen an applause. I hadn't seen an applause before that day. I haven't seen an applause since that day. I'm assuming they're not the best brand of bases. The guy took me for everything I had. I walked into the pawn shop and I was in the fifth grade. And I put all my money on the table and I said, this is what I have. What can I buy? And he said, that base is just that price. And so he took, he took all of my money and he gave me an applause. And I played that thing for about two months, and then I went to unplug it one day, and when I pulled the cord out of the input system, all the electronics and a huge chunk of the pick guard came out with it. <laughs> all the guts came out of my applause. And I was looking at it, thinking this is such a piece of junk. And I spent all that I had on it. And when I mess up, I imagine God looking at me the same way. You know, looking at me and thinking, seriously? I went to the cross for that guy? You know, really? That, that's, that's what I got. This is what I got. I got, I got this guy. You know, and, and but, but here is, is maybe our last, I, I, I've used you enough for a night. Maybe we'll end here. Uh, this is our last wonderful truth in verse 45 and verse 46. I'm probably not going to be able to stop. But again, the kingdom of heaven is like 
a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And this is a similar parable with a comparable interpretation. But it was one that would absolutely flummox right, his Jewish audience because pearls were not something that was valuable to them. A pearl was a Gentile commodity. They represent the worst of us perfectly. Because how is a pearl formed? It's what? Mm -hmm. It's in an oyster. What does it start like? Yeah, it starts with this annoying grain of sand that's just rattling around in there, bothering the oyster, causing it all kinds of trouble. And the oyster tosses around that grain of sand inside of itself and coats it with its own glory, layer upon layer of its own personal beauty, right? And this, this is my point. Most of the time, I feel like a scuzzy piece of sand, right? I don't feel like the pearl of great value. I don't feel like the hidden treasure. Maybe you do, right? Maybe I'm speaking to a room filled with people and you're like, I can't identify with that. I'm a precious pearl. I'm precious and I'm a pearl. And, but, but here's the thing. Although I don't see myself that way, he sees me that way. And he looks at me and he says, I'm going to coat you with glory. I'm going to take you in and I'm going to toss you around. I'm going to smooth out all your rough edges and I'm going to cover you with something precious and perfect. Right? The sun buys us and then the spirit goes to work sanctifying us. Right? He's the one that's constantly coating us and covering us every single day. The spirit isn't done with me, right? And, and that's why I still feel scuzzy, right? But he's not going to be complete with me until I stand with him in glory. The son purchased me because he knew what he was getting when he got me. There's no surprises with him. There's no moment where he pulls out an input system and says, wow, I'm so disappointed in you. I really wish I didn't purchase you. Because he knew that we were just a simple piece of sand. He says, I'm going to purchase you. And my spirit is going is to go to work perfecting you. And I lied to you. Let's finish this. Verse 47. Once again, it's, it'll be quick. I heard a groan. I'm sorry. Um, what can I do? There's Gil. Gil, uh, Gil told me to finish it. Uh, so verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down, right? So we were the hidden treasure. Now we're the precious pearl. And finally, we're going to be the good catch. So the net was let down into a lake, caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, set it down, collected the good fish in baskets, threw the bad ones away. All right, this is how it'll be at the end of the age. And the angel will come, separate the wicked from the righteous, throw them into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
have uh, you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. And he said to them, yeah, which of course means no. And he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So did you get it? Did you get it all? I don't believe for a moment that the disciples understood everything that he said. And you know, I kind of resent the fact that they weren't honest with him. You know, if they, if, when he said, okay, do you understand all these things? And if they just said no, then we could have had the most incredible explanations of all these parables that would, you know, make all of our jobs, not just mine, a lot easier. Right? There'd be no interpretive heresy coming out. Um, and he says, you know, these things, if you meditate upon them, they're going to be great truths for you. They're going to be, according to verse 52, new treasures for your house. Right? These things that you didn't understand before, these things that you couldn't, because all you had was the Old Testament, all the old treasures. These things, if you possess their wealth, if you take them in, ponder them, meditate upon them, glean the truths there in them, there'll be new treasures for your house. And my dad collects uh, uh, obscure antiques. And he gets a kick out of restoring all these old things to their former luster. And he's got a, a house filled with them, right? Old telephones, a telegraph device, um, weird scales that were used in the 1700s for, you know, Lord knows what. Uh, and he's also got this old Victrola that he restored that's just beautiful and it sounds terrible because it's a Victrola, let's be honest. But, uh, and all these things that are just really neat and old. Um, but in that room, he's also got a 55-inch TV, a DVD player, and a Wii, right? Which is weird. Their antique room, their museum room, and it's got all these old artifacts, and then it's got these really neat new modern treasures. My dad loves all the old stuff. He loves, you know, taking it out to the garage and, you know, tinkering with them and pondering their simplicity, you know, and all this stuff. And my mom loves all the new stuff. You know, she's got, uh, she's constantly watching that huge big screen TV and, you know, watching DVDs and all this stuff. And I know some saints that are like, you know what, I don't read the Old Testament because I don't understand it. But there's such rich treasures there. There's such wonderful pictures uh, of God's plan and shadows of his purchase. And then I know other Christians that are like, you know what, every day all I read is Psalms and Proverbs. Because I've heard the New Testament story and I know it. Um, but you can never exhaust it. Right? There's, there's portions like this that are a perfect picture of it. I've heard these parables time and again, and I sat through lectures on them in school. And when I sat down last night and this morning to write on them, I realized just how little I knew about the new treasures of the kingdom of God. It's like I was 
fumbling around, you know, trying to figure out how to turn on the Wii because it was this new treasure in my old antique room. Yeah, I was completely unfamiliar with it. These things aren't something that you hear once and then walk away from. And I think that that's the mistake that the disciples made right here. And I think that's why Jesus said this to them. The attitude was, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. And maybe that's all you're thinking tonight because this has been kind of a rough message. You know, and it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. I just want to get out of here and not think about this anymore. <laughs> and I feel the same way. But, you know, it may, maybe the disciples' attitude was, you know what, it's, it's cool. I don't really need to understand all this. Just write it down before we forget it. And I'm sure we'll figure it out later. But Jesus' attitude was no. Yeah, I mean, these are treasures now. And you can't exhaust them. You can't wear them out. You should prize these treasures as much as he prizes us as his treasure. And there's no mistaking the word in here. I mean, he puts them on equal ground. This is what I think about you. What do you think about me and my word? Is it something that you can just brush off and walk away from and go, okay, well, that's fine. I'll just throw that in the room somewhere. I'll find a spot for it, I'm sure. It's, no, I'm giving this to you so that you can fill your house with it. So that you could take it into your workshop and tinker around with it. So that you can sit in front of it and marvel at it. it fill your house with not just these old treasures, take these things in as the new. And, and we'll end there. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be good. Um, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. And, and then I'll, I'll dare to ask you if you have any questions. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had together. I pray, Lord, that, Lord, as your word has gone out, and, and it's, it's certainly been a, a unique word. God, that it wouldn't return void. And you promised that, that when it goes out, it's going to accomplish the purpose that you sent it. Lord, this is, I mean, this hasn't been an easy night for me, but I can't remember the last time I've dug deeper into your word. I can't remember the last time that I sat and thought about it so seriously and at such great length. And I think that's the point of this after all is that we wouldn't just walk away from it and brush it off, you know, which is easy to do and just say, yeah, I'm sure I got it. But that we would, that we would wait and consider the precious things that you would have to say to our heart through it. So Lord, bless your word to our spirit this evening. And I thank you for it. In your name. Amen. Amen.